Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day and welcome again to Profitable Farmer. Um, I hope you're well and keeping out of this traditional winter. We haven't had a winter like this one for a while. We had a negative six degree morning here and probably one of the biggest frosts I've ever seen the other day. So um, anyway, I hope you're well and warm wherever you are. Hey, um, in this podcast, um, I am absolutely delighted to introduce you to those that don't know you, Isabel Knight. Um, I was a farm consultant 20 years ago and 15 years ago and yeah. back when I was benchmarking and working with a host of farming families, I got to know a business called um, Proactive um, through a great friend of mine, Sarah Reynolds, now Sarah Roach, and she introduced me to Isabel Knight, who is co-founder to Proactive. 18 years later, Proactive is one of the preeminent succession planning firms in Australia and just delivering a wonderful service, helping farming families across Australia navigate succession. Um, we've had a few podcasts on this topic, but I deeply believe that Isabel's experience in this um, and the proactive approach to it is fantastic. And I think we've got so much to learn. Um, as I say, it just gives me great pleasure to introduce you all and to welcome Isabel to Profitable Farmer. Isabel, great to have you. Thank you, Jeremy. That's lovely. <clears throat> so, Isabel, before we get into all things ag and farm succession, um, what's your backstory before um, arriving into this space? What what sort of were you doing prior to, to starting Proactive 18 years ago? Um, I grew up on a, a farm uh, east of Juni, so farming was certainly in my background. And uh, when I left school, I studied business law. And then I did what I said I would never do, and I married a farmer. And uh, so that then was really where my interest in this was peaked. And it was because, obviously, I was marrying into a family and my husband was working in a farming business with his brother and parents. And there were so many things that needed navigating. And he was the youngest of his siblings, of his family. And so the timing, I suppose, of our marriage being the last one really was starting to put the pressure on having to make some decisions for everyone. And it was a really difficult space. Um, difficult to know even where to start. And I could see lots of other people in our community as well who were really struggling, beautiful people with the best of intentions, trying their best to do the right thing, but everyone not really doing a very good job of it. And there was no really bespoke service with a professional approach to this that really seemed to be making a difference. And so I made up my mind then that if I would could have the courage to do it, I would. So I set about doing lots of training 
and I did a psych degree as well because I believed that what we really need to understand is the psychology as much as anything else. That's really important. I could see that in my own experience firsthand and in the families that I was living amongst. And so I just study, study, studied while we had little children. We had three children. And when our youngest child was old enough, I actually went to work for Rabobank where they were starting a succession um, planning division and they were wanting some really good people to set it up and I was really honoured to be included in that and that was a great um, start then to this work and then I stepped out along with Sarah that you mentioned earlier uh, in 2004 to start this business because I, we both believed there was a real need for something that was bespoke for rural Australia particularly and something that didn't have any other agenda so that it was a delivery of a service for the clients that wasn't about financial brokerage, it wasn't about something else was actually parent and science. that's pretty much the story jeremy thanks isabel so if if i can ask you to reflect back then 18 years ago what were what was your read on how well or otherwise succession was or wasn't playing out in families across australia and obviously you saw a real problem, but what was your perspective on succession back then? Well, I believed that it was part of business management and I didn't feel that rural families were actually approaching it in that way, that it was getting out of hand and it was more about estates and what happened when someone died, and they weren't on the front foot being proactive about it because they were scared largely, I think, about not doing it well. Um, and there were lots of terrible war stories, shocking stories, all negative. So I felt like, you know, when you're young and naive and you think you can change the world, you think, right, we're going to put a positive slant on this and we're going to change rural Australia. So I think we were pretty gung-ho when we started, Jeremy. <laughs> But that's pretty much what I felt was happening at the time. There just was not a professional approach to it. Isabel, you mentioned that it's a business management issue more so than a state management issue. Um, what do you mean by that? And is that still your view? It certainly is still my view. What I mean by it is that succession planning is truly about business continuity and if it's not about business continuity, then it's actually about an orderly exit. So either way, it requires a plan and requires time. And it, and it requires a bit of project managing. And I think that um, businesses need to actually consider it as important a part of what they do as their operational aspects of what they do. Um, and so when you think about it in that context, in the context of business, then it helps us break it down into parts rather than it becoming just an emotionally embroiled test of endurance, then it can actually be something that's broken down into parts and can be quite addressed in a meaningful way and some and good decisions made with good advice 
you know, so that people are making well-informed decisions that they're happy to, to live by. And I think, you know, it, it was never, never done in that way in rural Australia because so often farms and businesses were just left in people's wills and often it was a surprise who get, got what. And that was okay in my grandfather's era, potentially, where whatever you wrote in your will went. But with the law today, you don't have the luxury of doing that. You need to actually proactively make a plan that is a succession plan with a business plan running in parallel that fits it and makes sense and an estate plan as well. So that if something suddenly does happen, then it fits in together and it's doable because, you know, so many times people would say, oh, I'll leave the farm to Johnny and I'll give Sarah, you know, a million dollars and Johnny will have to borrow a million dollars to pay Sarah. Well, that's just in the lap of the gods because when do farmers die? They die at the most inappropriate time, usually in the middle of a raging drought when commodities are worth nothing or whatever. Whenever it happens, it's a terrible time. And so I feel that, you know, you need to plan over time to allow a business to deliver some outcomes over time and that it's transparent so people don't get nasty surprises. And, and you can't leave it to a will. If you leave it to a will, well, basically you've just got to divide everything by how many kids you've got, otherwise you're in trouble. So, you know, that's what I mean by it being a part of good business management, Jeremy. So why then for families in business together is this conversation so often avoided or not discussed, do you think? There's a couple of reasons. I think that whoever raises it could be perceived to have their own agenda running and so they don't want to be that person that's perceived to have an agenda that mightn't be true, but it might be how it's seen to be. I think also there are bad, there are war stories and people don't want a repeat of those, although by doing nothing they'll probably have a repeat of them, ironically. And I think too we're not necessarily trained in communicating effectively in many aspects, and this is one, because we have the overlay of the personal with the overlay of the business and we're not trained in that you know we have to train ourselves and that's why you know our facilitators in proactive they they have to train so that they actually can facilitate effective communication and I think that's very underestimated by most people. So you mentioned personal versus professional um Outside of family business and outside of family farming, a couple of accountants or financial planners in business together can probably have a pretty constructive conversation around the succession of leadership in their firm or their practice or in their building company or physiotherapy practice or whatever. Is, is, there, is there a lot to learn from how professionals outside of agriculture go about this conversation that perhaps farming families might learn from? I think I think yes. I do think so because it is a largely a fairly business-like approach when those people sit down to start to sort this out and to sort it out. So I, I would say yes. 
However, I would also add that there is a significant difference between an accountancy firm and a family farm. And I think um, it's easier to be less emotional about the accountancy firm than it is to be emotional about the family farm because the family farm has been people's homes, it's been people's livelihoods, and often on the back of several generations. So there's a lot of legacy involved. So I think that it is a much more complex arena than simply an accountancy firm, for example. And I'm not I'm not belittling what it takes to build an, a successful business that you would hand on to people. I'm not belittling that. I'm just making a distinction about the difference, Jeremy. And so how do um, farming families, and this is an emotional topic, um, draw that distinction between arriving into succession with a professional business mindset versus a personal, perhaps emotional mindset. How do you how do you set that up and help farming families make that distinction? Well, there is a fair bit of education in the early stages of a process that we would take a family through. And the reason for that education is just this. It's to actually get everybody on the same page and to start to think about it maybe in a way they haven't considered it in the past. And some people will quite naturally step into that space and others will need more hand-holding. And that's not to say they don't make as much of contribution as another person in the process. It's just that some people might need a little more hand-holding in those early stages to actually uh, maybe broaden their perspective around what is involved. And most times, most feedback that we would have from clients who have worked with us would be that they did not understand at the outset what they would actually be working through. So they kind of know bits and pieces of what they want to work out and some of the decisions that maybe need to be made, but they don't understand the journey they need to go on to do that effectively. So just to change direction just for a moment, 18 years on, Isabel, um, having you know led this project and this business for as long as you have and built out a team now leading these conversations on farms across Australia, what, um, what are you most proud of Proactive having achieved in this, um, this space of farm family succession? I think that Proactive has made a difference in Australian agriculture and in our communities because I do believe that the very best stewards of our land are families because families have a long-term perspective and they have to treat the people and the land and the animals well. And so I suppose I feel proud of the fact that there are potentially families that are remaining in agriculture who may not have. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and your team, obviously very well-trained and highly skilled facilitators on a topic that is really quite complex and difficult. Um, what would you say about the proactive team that you've built? I'd say that first and foremost, they are all incredible human beings. They value their own families. So know what it is 
to walk to have the privilege to walk into other families. They're kind people. They've had to look after each other in this process so that they can look after families. They are all people who actually know what it is to run a business. So they, nobody can sit in front of them and say, well, you wouldn't have a clue because you've never done it. In mm. fact, they all have and are. And, and I think that that's a really special quality that they they bring and contribute to our clients' businesses. And Absolutely, absolutely Isabella. It's, it's absolutely been my experience of your team. Um, amazing group of people. So what is the process that you've designed with that team that helps families navigate succession? When, when you or one of your team arrive to the kitchen table on farm, what is, what is the broad process that you take that family through? Is, is there a set process that you take them through or is it unique to each family? How would you describe what you and your team do? First of all, there are always two facilitators for each family because we believe that we like to reflect the gender diversity in families in, in our team and we also believe that it is such um, complex work that it requires two people to support each other and the family effectively to go through this. It also gives a family more than one touch point and person to communicate with so that they can maybe more easily build rapport. We do have a process and the process has been built over many years and I think it's important to have a process because it gives structure, it gives security to both the facilitators and the team and proactive as well as our clients. However, there are aspects, of course, which are very, very much bespoke and tailored to the needs of the individual families. So when we start a process, it's very much about exploring the nature of the people in the family and, and really understanding them well and also the business well and the land, whatever is associated with those people. It's, it's really getting across that and understanding that well and asking a lot of questions. And when we've done that well, we can then identify the areas where a family require education and support in order to prepare them for decision-making. So we would never, ever land in a room to be making decisions without having done an enormous amount of work before that and without having everybody ready to make effective decisions that they can live and die by. You don't want to be in a room making decisions and walk out and everybody changes their mind and the sands shift in two minutes, you know, and the reason that decisions hold is because a lot of work is done beforehand. I think people need to feel quite comfortable and ready. They're never really comfortable. You know, it's, it's an anxious experience for people, obviously, because there's so much at stake and people don't take it lightly. So no one skips into the room feeling, you know, this is going to be easy because it's not. Um, and, and it is a process over time. It's not just about, you know, right, we can tick the box and that's succession done. It's actually a process over time. And when it involves a business plan, which it inevitably does, well, there are outcomes to be delivered sometimes over 10 to 15 years. 
So it's a very long process with the best outcomes. I feel like some people think that succession is a meeting or it's a couple of meetings and it's a moment in time. Um, what would you comment be to our listeners that sort of think that when they actually get around to having a, a succession conversation that it'll just be a, you know, we'll lock out a meeting with our accountant or we'll have half a day or a day together as a family and we'll sort that out and get on with life. Um, how long does the process typically take and and what is the mindset that we should go into succession with around that process? I think the mindset is that it's a process over time. I think when someone thinks they can just walk into a room and get it over, over and done with and walk on, they don't understand really what needs to be worked through. And so there would be a, la- a fair amount of education required for someone who had that kind of a, a perspective. So um, how long it takes varies depending on the stage of life and the stage of the business. So if someone's quite proactive and they're starting to make plans with succession in mind, they would probably be doing that when their children are quite young so that they have options later on should there be some decisions made around succession. So I think for those people who are most proactive, Succession never really leaves their mind and what they're doing is preparing themselves and their families and their businesses for ultimate succession. So it's, um, it is a process over a long time. You mentioned um, three plans, a business plan, um, a succession plan and an estate plan. Um, what do those practically look like? In particular, those last two, um, are they all one document? Are they separate documents? Are they legal documents? Um, what, what do they look like and, and how do they sit beside each other, Isabel? They are separate but interlocked so that one makes sense because the other one makes sense and the next one makes sense. They're not, they're not sitting Um, You know, it would be foolish to have, for example, a business plan that didn't affect succession in the way it's planned, and then it would be foolish to have a business plan that couldn't deliver on an estate plan. So they are all interlocked. And practically what they look like is there is documentation certainly around the succession plan. And there's certainly documentation around a business plan. We would try to keep it quite simple. So um, with timelines and financial goals and um, try to keep those quite simple, very clear. The estate plan, of course, has quite a few legal instruments associated with it. And the will is just, a will is just one. There's often a deed of family agreement Uh, There may be mortgages, there may be uh, contracts, there there can be all sorts of aspects and instruments to an estate plan because you don't want the timing of your death to be the catalyst for a whole bunch of things to happen that may not fit with your business plan. You know, if you've just bought the farm next door 
or the business in town and then someone dies and suddenly you've got to upend everything and pay out a whole bunch of capital to various people, then the timing's going to nail you to the wall. So it's important that the delivery of some of those outcomes are not all left in a will. And I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, it does. Um, Who's involved in the process, Isabel, and how do you involve everyone, in-laws, outlaws, off-farm children, the partners of on-farm and off-farm children? Um, Is it important that everyone has um, involvement and even an equal contribution to the conversation? Or do you, you know, think that there's merit in working with the, the senior generation first and getting clarity with them and for them on how they want for it to be? And then it's a communication process with the extended family? Or how, how do you, is it one in all in from the outset? Or, or is, it, um, is it important that it's a more carefully managed um, multiple set of conversations, if that makes sense. What's your view on who and how to engage all people involved? Well, I do think that anybody who is affected by the decisions made does need to be involved. And there are a lot of people who want to lock, lock in-laws out of the room, and I don't subscribe to that theory because they are affected by the decisions that are made. and. Also, when treated appropriately, they can make amazing contributions to the process. I would, however, say that there is a need to prioritise the incumbent generation. And the reason is that they have already given a fair chunk of their own lifetime, usually, to raising their family and running this business and looking after the land. And they are the key stakeholders at the moment and they are the key decision makers. So they need to be prioritised and they don't have another lifetime to live should they make poor decisions now. So, and I don't think it's appropriate that all of the decisions they need to make are made in front of their family. For example, when it comes to talking about how they want to see their own future as a couple, They need to get clear on that together and they may need help with that because, I mean, we meet and fall in love and marry because we're very different to each other and that doesn't change just because you've lived with someone for 30 years. So mostly you will find the mums and dads are not on the same page about some things and that's probably what made them successful actually but it's a complex thing when you're in succession planning. So I think it's appropriate for mums and dads to do some of the legwork on their own in private so that when they do come to their family conversations, they are clear together because we don't need anybody putting any wedges in between people, nor do we need to isolate anyone. That's not a good feeling. So I would say that, you know, in that discovery phase when you're starting to work out the lie of the land, you would be starting to tailor how some of those conversations will take place and what decisions actually do need to be made in private prior to getting in front of other people. So there's a bit of of both. I think everyone needs to be involved, 
but how they are involved needs to be quite respectful and very appropriate. Isabel, what's your reflection on what plays out that means that families get this wrong? What happens between the, the individuals in the family or the way in which they go about it that can um, lend to a less than optimum outcome? Well, I would say where there's um, a situation where an aspect, for example, is prioritised over others. For example, I've seen many succession plans that are based on taxation minimisation, and I would be the first person to say that we would be silly not to take into account very, very sound tax advice However, sometimes other things and other aspects do prioritise minimising tax. And you will have carnage along the roadside if you make that the key priority because the key priority in my mind is actually the people. It's the relationships we have with each other as a family that matters more than anything else in the world. You know, we don't, on our epitaphs, we don't write down our grade in business. We care that we were good people, that we cared for our family, that we had good relationships. Those are the things that make such a difference. So, you know, I, I think the carnage comes when people try to pretend that this isn't emotional, they don't want to have those conversations, or they prioritise um, tax minimisation over other aspects. So that's just one thing that I've seen in the past. Other times is when you leave people out of the room. Um, another time is when people don't handle the communication effectively in their business and they lose key people in their businesses because key people are scared about what's coming next and they go to somewhere else that they feel safer. So, you know, when, when those people are not, either involved or communicated effectively with, you can see a threat to businesses um, in that regard. Uh, sometimes I think too when we don't identify the most appropriate people for the, for the roles in business too, I think sometimes we prioritise, oh, well, little Johnny's been here for 20 years so we'll give him that role rather than thinking, well, you know, Jake, he really ticks all the boxes and would do the job well or Sally. You know, I think sometimes we we make some flippant decisions that can have terrible outcomes. And and I've seen couples as well where, you know, a dominant player just makes decisions to suit themselves and the squeaky wheel, you know, gets an outcome and everybody else doesn't speak to them for the rest of their lives. Mm. Coming back to a comment you made before about good business management can do a lot to kind of solve succession if a farm business achieves what you've just described of having you know a clear team structure and clear roles and responsibilities and and they're talking proactively about how to transfer you know even operational responsibilities um, and progress people over time mm. if if a lot of those good business management practices strategic plans um as I say, org charts, job descriptions, career paths, um, and those things are all well mapped out. How much does that shrink 
the succession project if there is good business management practice? Oh, that makes the world of difference, Jeremy. Um, it makes the world of difference. It takes away a lot of the unnecessary conflict associated with someone vying for importance or position. So um, mm. it's it's terribly important. The other thing I would say that's incredibly important inside of the planning process is actually having agreement around capital allocation because you can imagine you get around a table and everybody wants to spend the $1 their own way on what they think matters most. And sometimes mums and dads funding, for example, gets left way behind and too late because the most excited people around the table want to buy the farm next door and the one next to that and the one next to that and the one next to that. And they never sell any land. So they ultimately don't do anything that's, you know, really set up for mum and dad, just as an example. So I think capital allocation agreement around that is vitally important. And you know, as well as I know, that in agriculture, we don't have this level uh the bucket's not level. It, it's very volatile and we have our good times and our bad times and we need to be able to agree in our good times and in our bad times what we're prioritizing, prioritizing those dollars to. And but I'll take, take your point, Isabel, that that's a business management conversation, less a succession conversation. I find it so interesting that at times... You know, who gets the next ute upgrade or who gets their house renovated or, you know, as you say, what project gets prioritised next becomes a succession issue. I don't see those as succession issues at all. I just think to your point, that's just um, a, a business team um, who might happen to be family members having a good professional conversation around the priorities for the business. Um, I think if you can if you can do that, then so many of those business management decisions can sit within the business plan, which makes the whole concept of succession far more palatable and far more concise. But I think when people don't have that good business strategy and that good business planning, and those professional conversations around the business, all of a sudden succession can become, you know, a massive project um, that is all-consuming around so many decisions mm. that I think shouldn't necessarily be linked necessarily to the, to, to the succession piece. No, you're right. It's, uh, it's absolutely, that's absolutely right. But the nature of rural Australia is that we have had many businesses that are successful in spite of themselves. And so we don't have we haven't had a lot of professionalization in these farming businesses. So you know, the first time sometimes those conversations or those decisions are even brought to light, the necessity for them is when people come in the door to start to talk about succession. And um and the timing of succession and how that's going to happen is very important for business managers to understand and know so that they can manage a business effectively to that. Um, because as I said, there are priorities that are associated with people's personal wishes that mm. the business is the vehicle to achieve. So they go hand in hand. 
Yeah, they do. Um, so in, in the process that you outline um, and that training and that sort of setting up that you provide early in your process with families so that succession decisions can be made, you know, at some point, how much of, of what you do is around helping them with the business plan um, and getting clarity and alignment around roles, responsibilities, goals, visions, values, those things, um, before then you can move toward discussing those other two plans? I would say most of most of the work. Okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's, it's really refreshing to hear, again, that good business practice applied to farming families can be, you know, foundational then to more strongly move into a succession conversation. Absolutely. Mm. And I think having communication platforms is incredibly important as well because people, A, they have the opportunity to communicate at an appropriate time and place and, B, they become familiar with that type of communication because it's pretty hard for people if they haven't been used to that to come suddenly into a fairly intense situation where some big decisions have to be made because they haven't been made and it's been put off for too long, you know, that's that's really tough for people and pretty unfair. So I would say that people who, who are the incumbent business managers have a responsibility to actually implement some of this practice into their businesses in order to prepare for better succession. So then... Friction around the introduction of some of those. I, th- I, I can see how families doing that together, led by a facilitator, um, can bring everyone along for the ride. If I'm the incumbent generation and I come in saying, right, oh, I want to set down this business plan, these goals, these priorities, I want this org chart, I think people should be organised in this way, I think our communication needs to be professional, more formal, um, we need to have weekly meetings, monthly meetings, you know, annual planning meetings. Um, that's what we believe is kind of good business practice. And it, it is moving, you know, farm businesses from amateur to professional. What would you say to the younger generation that might be coming in to try and introduce some of these professional practices where they get that pushback from um, the patriarch or the matriarch that hasn't had those part of their day-to-day before that point? Well, I would say be respectful to start with and don't make the older generation feel like they're dumb or they've done something wrong. It's more a conversation around I've got some ideas that might enhance and benefit us all and I'd like to see if we can try some of them and begin in small chunks. Choose three things maybe that you can implement now that might make a difference and and bring people along on that journey. Don't ramrod them and bully them and carry on. I think it's important how it's approached. And normally mums and dads, will they will come along if they can see that there, there may be some benefits to that. And, and don't expect them to suddenly become that style of business manager when they've been another style of business manager for 30 years. So it's the 
the newer generation probably who are going to have to do most of the legwork and take responsibility for actioning and implementing and being accountable. And that will give their parents confidence when they can see that. You know, it's step, it's one step at a time. It's not being a great big bully and landing in their boots and all, I would say. Yeah, it's a great point. I love that you frame it around respect. I think, um, yeah, if you can start with the small changes and and help everyone in the family see that it's, you know, with their best interests in mind rather than my own interests in mind. That's right. Um, so come in with a selfless rather than a selfish intent. Um, then I think normally most family members will will get on board and come along for the ride. And then over time, as you build that trust and that respect, then you can probably go after some bigger changes and some bigger decisions. But it does highlight again why it's a process. It's not a moment in time. Absolutely, it's a process. And everyone needs to go on the journey. It's not, you can't just leave people behind. And, And you can't say, oh, it's all too hard because you're giving up if you do that. Isabel, I often see families trying to solve this problem in isolation and their focus is on, you know, this is our reality now, this is our balance sheet now, this is the farm that we have now. Um, How do I possibly get succession done when I've got two or three or four children um, where their focus is on now? what would you comment be on the importance of focusing at least just as much on the brightness of the future and on opportunities of the future um, in how you construct a, a, a meaningful succession than just focusing on the here and now? Well, I would say that many people are very stuck on you know, looking at what their current balance sheet is and they think, well, if I've got three children, to be fair, I've got to just, you know, try to give them a third each. And the reality is that that normally is very difficult to do because we have lots of lumpy assets and um, lots of assets required to affect successful businesses and so we don't want to pull rugs out from under businesses. So, you know, people are very conflicted when they think about the here and the now. And I think where we like to ask people to focus is on opportunity. So we are fundamentally fortunate people because we do actually have some wealth and we do have the opportunity to create a future, most of us. We've got a lovely combination of people who are desperately wanting to to do it. We've got people who are skilled and have lots of attributes and we have capital to deal with. So with all of that, we need to start thinking about opportunity. And when we understand each other well and we understand what can make a difference in people's lives, we can start to creatively problem solve around how we might support making a difference in people's lives. And that doesn't mean giving them a third of the balance sheet necessarily. That might be the timing of something that can be done that creates an opportunity that they would otherwise have to work 20 years to achieve. Who knows what it is? For each individual, it can be really different. And so I think when we're in succession and really doing this well, we are being both creative 
and we are problem solving with a view to creating opportunity. And that is fundamentally the privilege we have as people with assets and families that we can do that. Mm. There are many other people in this country who do not have that luxury. Yeah, we are so privileged for, as you say, having having even the ability to have this conversation. I love the frame, and it's probably worth even amplifying that succession is and can absolutely be a creative problem-solving process for families. Um, at its best, Jeremy, it is. Yeah, at, and that's wonderful because I think a lot of people think that it's more a it's a logical transactional cutting up of a pie. And I, I think the more we can let go of that construct and the more we can focus about, you know, what is it that my two off-farm brothers and my off-farm sister want um, and what can best help them achieve more quickly what they want for their careers and their families, mm. how can what we have on our balance sheet help them achieve that more quickly? And in, in the giving of that, then what can that mean back for you know, the son or the daughter that's back on the farm, that just creates so much possibility, doesn't it, compared to having the other mindset of what what succession is actually, you know, is about. I think that's a wonderful distinction. Um, so then, you know, one of the things we talk about, Isabel, is that for change to happen, there's got to be brightness of the future and a compelling vision that people want to move towards. But there also needs to be, often sufficient dissatisfaction with the current reality. How how important is it to put some hot coals under people's feet in order for change on the succession topic to happen? Um, You know, I I talk about in negotiation that it's important to create brightness of the future, but it's also important to create darkness of the future um, so that people have real clarity around what, um, what both options look like so that then you're more more likely to create a meaningful change what would your comment be around about creating some bleakness around what happens if nothing changes well um an example of just that is uh some people that we have worked with where for example for whatever reason mum and dad for example are not willing to come into a process such as ours and we have worked with members of the younger generation separately to start to educate them and arm them more effectively to have better decisions to have better conversations and to start to be a little more compelling in how they're approaching those conversations with their parents and um, an example of some of what we've done is looked at, well, if we continue to do what we're doing in the way we're doing, what does that look like for the future? And, you know, that can have some pluses around it, but it can have some real minuses around it too because there are often existing threats that no one's actually thought about. And so when you walk the years forward and just say, well, we're going to take it that status quo exists, and you walk those years forward, and then those threats come in, then people are really starting to see the darkness, as you say, of the future. And it's a choice you make now about whether you go there or you go somewhere else in a more proactive fashion that creates the brightness. 
So it's difficult to actually enunciate all of that, but it's. I hope people understand that that's terribly important. And um, nobody, no mum and dad really wants to sit there and face the blackness. So, but sometimes they need a little help to see that that's what could be. And classic example of that is nine times out of ten is reading people's current wills back to them and saying, right, well, with what I know you have and what I know you've got for children and this is your current will and you die tomorrow, this is what's going to happen. Most people, the blood drains out of their faces and they nearly have a conniption because they had no idea that's how it was going to play out. So it's important, Jeremy, absolutely, that people are well informed. If they're going to do nothing, nothing actually is still a choice. And it has outcomes, and you better be informed about them. Yeah, and I think also linked to that, um, we talk about the importance of arriving into succession really respectfully. Yes. But talking about darkness of the future can be done respectfully. Um, oh, I think I think I think a lot of people don't want to have the straight conversations around. Well, if if nothing changes, here's how the future is going to look. That's not a disrespectful conversation if it's done with the right intent and in the right way. Um, it can no. still be a respectful conversation with other members of the family. Um, Absolutely it can yeah. because the, what you're looking at when you're doing that is you're looking at the impacts on all of the people and it, it, the impact will be on not just one person. It will be on, on many people and, and so you are caring for them in even walking that through. What about baggage from the yesteryear? If I had a real tough discussion with my brother or my sister and there's still baggage around that, how do people best let go of disagreements from yesterday so they can arrive to that business planning and then that succession planning conversation and be constructive when they do look into the future at opportunities. How, how do you how do you help families navigate those disagreements from yesterday? Is do you need to revisit them and let go of them so that you can move forward more strongly? Or how do you how do you navigate that so that succession dialogue can be constructive? Well, it's not easy, and but obviously it's very important because. What we would sort of say that that's the baggage that sits on an existing carousel. And if you do not get that baggage off early, then that baggage is going to get in the way all the way through and you will get a substandard set of outcomes. So the responsibility of every human being who values their relationships is actually to work on themselves. And we all have to do that. And any relationship we have is between two people. And those two people, to have the best relationship they can possibly have, must each commit to doing their own work and taking personal responsibility for what they are responsible for. Now, most people won't own up to what they are responsible for. And if we go back to conversations we've had that haven't gone well, we normally can find that we ought to own a good proportion of what could have been better. So it's being pretty honest with ourselves. And if we are not that person, we are not going to be a great contributor to something 
that needs to benefit many people that we care so much about. And it's not easy work, Jeremy. That's the hardest work a human being will ever do. Yeah, I love that in today's age, there's a whole new narrative around the fact that great leaders are those that are willing to be vulnerable. Um, And so if there is disagreements of yesterday, um, being the one that turns up and says, hey, I just want to revisit that and I want to apologise, I now reflect on that and here's where I was, you know, out of line or here's what I said that didn't serve and, you know, being willing to take responsibility for what happened yesterday can be a great way to let go of some of those challenges and reconnect with individuals. Would that be a fair comment? Absolutely, Jeremy. Absolutely. That's right. And and sometimes people need to go and do some courses before they come into this space so that they can be their best selves. Mm. Yeah, nice comment, Isabel. Thank you. So what's the best outcome? If we if we jump forward and think about some of the best outcomes you've seen um, that you're most proud of or what you would want for every family, what is the ideal outcome for a succession process? The ideal outcome is a family that continues to love each other and is happy to have their Christmases together and will support each other and be there for each other when the chips are down because life inevitably throws you some terrible chips. So if a family can get through and be that family, then they're the families I would be most proud of. So there's no mention in what you just said to the patch of dirt. Well, sometimes the patch of dirt is less important than the people. Yeah, it's so interesting. I I often reflect on succession conversations that I've been part of when I was back consulting and since, that so much of the focus is on the patch of dirt more so than the relationships. Um, But I love that what you just described, it it is all about family relationships. And, you know, sometimes those that priority gets lost in, in the process. It does, sadly. So, why Isabel, frightened, Jeremy. It's why a lot of people are frightened of succession. Yeah, and like that's the last conversation I wanted to ask to have with you, Isabel. Is is a lot of the older generation probably don't want to go there? I would imagine because of fear of damaging relationships. Is that right? What is it that keeps the older generation from wanting to start the process? couple of things. One is absolutely the fear of Pandora's box and what they're lifting the lid on. They often know that they don't have the resources to handle that well themselves, so they don't want to be in a situation where they have to. And I think, too, for some people, they think succession is about giving them a use-by date. And so the, the true vulnerability for a human being is when they perceive their future without purpose. And good succession is not about people who don't have purposeful lives, regardless of their age. So I think those are really the the points that incumbent business owners and farmers worry about and are frightened of. So how do you start the conversation if if you're either the older generation or that younger generation or even the off-farm generation? Um, and if there isn't a conversation already happening around this, how how do you kickstart the process respectfully and acknowledging those fears and concerns that that most likely the older generation might be might be feeling? 
I think actually acknowledging those fears, thinking deeply about them and acknowledging them is actually a good starting point. And many people don't start there because they're not very good at putting themselves in the shoes of another person. And to do this well, we need to be able to put ourselves truthfully in the shoes of every other individual around our family table and particularly the shoes of our parents because they have invested so much of themselves. They are getting older. And I know in my mid-50s how different I feel now to how I felt 10 years ago in terms of my own personal vulnerability because I'm getting older. And you become a little invisible as you get older. You know, there's lots of books being written about that. And so it's really understanding that for the young person, succession potentially represents excitement. For the older person, it represents letting go, facing their fears and enormous vulnerability. So we need to acknowledge that and be very, very gentle and very kind around that. Wonderful. That, that distinction of really understanding um, the perspective of each of the other individuals in the room um, just speaks to that respect and empathy that is so important when you're going about a delicate process and a delicate conversation like this. Absolutely. It's, it's critically important and your your really needing to demonstrate what you need from everyone else and so you you as a facilitator you must lead the way by communicating in the way you wish to see others communicate so demonstrating respect speaking mindfully being kind is the fundamental foundation of any family's future. So last question, Isabel, um, is there any other advice that you would have for farming families that are struggling with this or just getting started in the process? Oh, there are so many things. I, I just would say don't be afraid of it step into it. You don't have to do everything all at once. Just make a start, just little bit by little bit, progress forward, even if it feels like it might be one step back and forward and two steps back. Just keep in the process, keep in the process. Don't step off it. And I think getting some really good help is important. Of course, I would say that. I have a business that does that. The reason it exists is because I think it's really, really important. And I know firsthand that it would have been so beneficial for us had we have had the opportunity. And I would say too that it's important that people who help you actually have done training in facilitation, in communication, and that they actually understand how important that is. Because fundamentally, if you get that, if that's done poorly and someone just races into a room and heads straight for the balance sheet, you are going to have substandard outcomes and potentially that's going to leave everybody a bit sour. And speaking plainly on that, um, 
it might be that the obvious thought process is to go and grab your lawyer or your accountant to, to help facilitate this. I think this conversation highlights just how important it is to have qualified and very capable facilitators lead the process early. Um, and perhaps that is before those other professionals are invited in to be part of the process. Um, what I love about what we've talked about, which has changed my perspective on succession completely today, Isabel, is that it is a creative problem-solving process so that if we think into the future about the opportunities and what can be created for a farming family, you know, if we come together and creatively problem-solve together, um, so many more opportunities and possibilities get, get opened up for that process if we look at succession in that way. So, so many distinctions from this discussion. Um, I want to thank you sincerely, Isabel, for your time. Um, it's been wonderful to be aware of and watch the proactive journey across Australia over the last 18 years. I want to sincerely congratulate you for what you've achieved in a space that is really complex and really um, challenging in so many ways. But I think um, you and your team should be so proud of the contribution that you have made to succession and to farming families in Australia. And congratulations for your persistence and, and how you've gone about creating the team that you have. It's, um, it's wonderful. And um, yeah, great to have you part of this conversation today. So thank you for your insights and for sharing. It's a pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you. You're very kind. And so proactive.com.au. For those of you um, that this conversation has had an impact on or struck a chord with, um, recommend Isabel and her team highly, proactive with a g.com.au for more information. I'm sure that um, Isabel and her team would be only too happy to have a conversation with you. Isabel, all the best for the rest of winter. Um, congratulations again and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.